Ngadlu Tumpundi, Ngadlu Ghana Yarchanga Imbarendi. We acknowledge that we are meeting on the lands of the Ghana people. We respect their spiritual relationship with country. We also acknowledge the Ghana people as the custodians of the Adelaide region and that their cultural and heritage beliefs are still as important to the living Ghana people today. I pay particular respects to the women of Ghana culture on today, International Women's Day. My name is Angela Savage. I'm CEO of Public Libraries Victoria and a writer. And it's my great pleasure to welcome you this afternoon to the session, A Bloody Good Rant with Tom Keneally. <laughs> a man who, let's face it, needs no introduction, but I'm going to introduce him anyway. Tom is a national treasure who began his writing career in 1964 and has published 33 novels since, if I've got it right. Yeah. Most recently, Corporal Hitler's Pistol, which we will be touching on today. Among his many honours, he has been shortlisted for the Booker Prize four times, winning with Schindler's Ark. He's also written several works of non-fiction, including his three-volume series, Australians. And his recent memoir, A Bloody Good Rant, which we'll be discussing today. Please join me again in welcoming Tom Keneally. Thank you. So, Tom, in A Bloody Good Rant, you describe yourself as, quote, a codger, an ancient having his last good rant. All I can say is if every rant in this country was as erudite and well-researched as yours, we'd be in a much better place. But tell us about what motivated you to put your rants into writing at this point in your career. Uh, well, I, I began to uh, write this as <coughs> volume four <coughs> of the history of Australia. And uh, I found myself in big trouble. I knew in a way I was too close to it to make sense of it. But I had some themes about which I wrote, which I thought were extractable into a book. And so we decided that the, the editor and I decided that we might get away with um, dealing with it in terms of a personal confession. Uh, for example, I feel that uh, our uh, economics have changed drastically since the time of Commonwealth. Uh, we are, we always felt, old codgers like me, and our parents told us that we had a place at the table of Commonwealth. But we now know that the new economics, which have been in fashion since the 70s, the trickle-down business, has, um, ha has in fact excluded uh, a fifth of the Australian population, at least. It has put our funding for schools under pressure because it reduces every human, human activity to a... Um, uh, to a business, and uh, look how well that turned out in aged care. Mm. Uh, the, uh, uh, the loss of uh, being a student, of being a patient, of being a pilgrim, of being a wanderer in the Commonwealth, uh, the loss of all that was subsumed into the one word, client or the other word, consumer. Mm. 
And I really abominated that. I thought it reduced us to a lower thing than citizenship or a member of the community. And I think the poison of that, of those economics, for which men won Nobel Prizes, I might tell you, the, uh, the man who made the, uh, uh, came up with the formula for marriage, the economic formula of marriage, a man called Becker. And I haven't mentioned this recently, so I might be a bit rusty on what he said, but he said that marriage was a can't, uh, contract to maximize uh, mutual utility. <laughs> so imagine if um, Marvel had written his great poem to his coy mistress uh, as to my mutual utility. <laughs> uh, and so it's easy to make fun of, but I mean, I've got to say about Becker, he made a formula for marriage, which is used by planners, economic planners, mm. Mm. a formula for drug addiction. Uh, a formula, he even created the rotten kid syndrome, when rich people have rotten kids, uh, and, uh, uh, and so on. So that nothing in the human experience, from sexual love to family cohesion, was reduced to a formula, which only goes as far. I always liked uh, the Kennedys. Now, in, in a weird long life, I knew Ted Kennedy so well that I once left my underwear at the Kennedy compound. <laughs> I said to my daughter, I'm too unglamorous to leave my underwear <laughs> at the Kennedy compound. But one of the Kennedys uh, has a wonderful speech, Robert, who would have made a wonderful president and was assassinated. He wrote the gross, uh, uh, yes, the man who invented gross domestic products said, don't take it too seriously. Don't beat each other up about it. I don't want this to become a stick for governments to beat each other with. And immediately became a stick. It's the rating gross domestic product. Of which Robert F. Kennedy said, the gross domestic product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education, or the joy of their play. It does not include the beauty of our poetry, strength of our marriages, the intelligence of our public debate, or the integrity of our public officials. It measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short, except what makes life worthwhile. And I think- Brilliantly put, brilliantly put. Uh, I felt that that uh, is a increasingly a plaint that old codgers uh, utter, uh, liberal and labor, are aware that something, there's been some form of prestidigitation, verbal or uh, ideologically, ideological put upon us, 
we are supposed to be uh, servants of the uh, machine and we were let off from being servants, uh, helots in the, uh, uh, for the great Moloch of the market economy, only for COVID. <laughs> and uh, we found we still had enough social cohesion to call ourselves a community, uh, which wasn't possible in America, which has suffered the worst blast of, of this economic rationalism, even to the extent one of the worst examples is charter schools, I think, which we can talk about if we've got time. Sure. So I wanted to write about that, about how the idea that everyone has a place at the table of Commonwealth, even poor people, uh, that the children of poor people, Menzies introduced Commonwealth scholarships. They were thought of by Chifley, Menzies implemented them. Those Commonwealth scholarships transformed our society, catapulted a lot of working class Irish kids into the professions. And, uh, you know, Irish Catholic kids and so on. Uh, and the brothers with their straps belted us in. To, that we're either going to be professionals or die. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I think those uh, wonderful, for example, Susan Ryan, who we recently buried at St Mary's Cathedral, she uh, was a scholarship kid. Uh, so many my examples. My mum like was, yes. People who would not have got an education any other way. But let me let me stop you. You can tell even from the start of, of, of Tom's introduction to this book just how beautifully lyrically it's written uh, and also how far-reaching it is. And I think it's incredibly interesting and appropriate that it was going to be volume four of Australians and it's turned out to be Tom Keneally's Australia because so much of what you write in this book, and you're quite upfront about it, comes back to that question of what it means to be Australian. You're called a truly great Australian in the bio, um, in addition to having won so many of our literary awards. You were founding chairman of the Australian Republican movement, which I didn't know until I'd read about that, and you've represented yes, Australia. Yes, you see Malcolm, would um, you remind me? I will, I will. <laughs> And yet there's a bit in the book, in A Bloody Good Rant, where you quote um, conservative academic uh, Geoffrey Partington as saying, of course, Tom Keneally hates Australia. And I just wondered how you would respond to that barb today. Oh, I, far more urbanely than I did on radio that night. Uh, <laughs> Geoffrey Partington is an old communist. He's an Englishman uh, who... Uh, changed into, as many old communists did, into a um, quadrant warrior, a Cold War warrior commentator. Uh, the qu quadrant has been an important conservative journal for uh, many a time. And, uh, but I was astounded by the confidence with which he said it, of course. It, so I got into him and he went and saw a lawyer, which, uh, and I had to apologise to him on air. Oh. Because you don't want to go to, you know, I mean, save yourself the trouble for God's Absolutely. sake. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> but uh, 
I, I felt that it was interesting that every uh, early Adelaide Festival had sessions on Australian identity. I think it's significant we don't anymore. Uh, I think there's some sense, I, I think we're less stressed about it than we were, but we were acutely stressed and, you know, you'd have a seminar and you'd hope someone would say something that gave you an identity other than Don Bradman, you know? And um, uh, who is, he is our great Don Bradman and uh, sadly a, a noble South Australian called Marsh Court Marsh Bowl Lily is, has just died too. Uh, but um, I, I, I uh, felt that we are, even when Pat, Paddington said that, uh, that was in the 90s, uh, we were very hazy about what our identity uh, really was. And we wanted it defined in literary festivals and we had to wait till it arrived. And I think that uh, post-war immigration was a revelation to us. Uh, post-war immigration showed us that they don't arrest writers yet. They do deny them sponsorship money often. I mean, young writers and so on, but they don't arrest them yet in Australia. You can go to China. I remember saying in China a few years ago, I don't approve of the policy, federal policy on immigration, and there are reasons why, and a few, few other, and particularly on this application of market economics to areas that are not really part of the market. And I uh, said I can, I'm very proud that I can say all that to you and not being, be put in prison. I don't have to worry about being imprisoned when I go home. Uh, and, uh, um, and thus, uh, I delight in the Australian freedoms. And, there's, and I think there's, there's another really strong thread that comes through in your book, and I'd, I'd be interested in your comment on this, because I think it is a... It's, it's, a, it's a direction we're shifting into, although we still have a hell of a long way to go with it. But it is about the recognition of Indigenous sovereignty, the recognition of that, what do you call it, 2,000 generations yes. of Indigenous history. And the... I mean, I can see you are hungry in this book for, for that reconciliation, for that integration, which yeah. we're not there yet. But it strikes me that that's also part of what's pushing us towards this this better, you know, gradual, incremental improvement in terms of when we talk about things like Australian identity. There is a change in the imagination of Australians, I think. Uh, for me, the crucial thing was encountering Lake Mungo years ago, getting to know more and more about it, ultimately meeting Jim Bowler, the man who found the uh, Mungo woman and M Mungo lady... Uh, uh, and Mungo Man. And he did that in the 1970s, as you know. Mungo Man discovered uh, 1974. And he and the 
uh, archaeologists who took over didn't necessarily do the right things with the remains. So Mungo Man had a long journey home again uh, and was reburied, but without any national enthusiasm yeah. in 2019. Why I think this man should be uh, at the centre of great national enthusiasm is that he's 42,000 years old. He is the first uh, ritual burial that humankind has. The uh, ochre he's buried in, in New South Wales, <laughs> uh, when the border didn't exist, comes from South Australia. All those Western Australian and even Queensland tribes came down to South Australia for their ochre. Uh, and um, I remember, I ended up reading, what, I wrote a book called uh, The Dickens Boy, uh, and it's about Dickens' son, Plorn. And two Dickens were working on stations in the Barrier Ranges and the Wilcannia area. And the Cooper's Creek Aboriginals in the 1860s, early 1870s, came down through there, the Barrier Ranges, and went into South Australia to collect their ochre every year. And uh, as they'd been doing for 40,000 years. As they'd been years. doing for 40,000 years. Uh, you know, uh, Mungo Man and his fellow citizens traded. They traded with people up near like, like Lightning Ridge. They traded with, for the ochre. They traded for hard stone from up in the Australian Alps, the top of the Murrumbidgee, uh, and, and other places. Uh, and um, this was a beautiful place to live uh, before the last ice age in that it was a full lake. It was a sea, an inland sea. And to it came all that a prototon the two and a half ton vegetarian animals, uh, all the giant uh, kangaroos, all the, the giant emus, yes. all the giant parenti to eat. Protein came. They didn't have to even go to the supermarket. Protein came to them. And then they have to go out hunting occasionally. And of course they had the terror of the marsupial line, which is the deadliest form of big cat that's ever lived. But it, it was a timid, it tended to be a solitary big cat. But it, it was the most efficient killer of all the cat-like uh, predators that we've had on Earth. A relative of the koala and with the big thumb, which they knew they would slit your throat with. They were very efficient uh, killers. Um, Tom, I think there should be one in every child's <laughs> Australian child's bed. <laughs> this, this is such an extraordinary story. And when I read your chapter on Mungo Man in this book, I was frankly shocked by the complete lack of official recognition, celebration of this, of this extraordinary man. history. And what do you think's going on there? I mean, when you speak about it, you fire us all up with imagination. Our, our brains are going crazy seeing that megafauna coming down to the lake. Do you think it's just lack of imagination on, on the politicians' oh, part? Oh, yes, that and they it's, it's wise exaggeration because the culture wars would be over. 
they'd be resolved. We'd all have our history. Uh, there wouldn't be white and black armband. Those fake poles uh, that were posited by John Howard, uh, otherwise a very nice man, behaves much better in public than Keating. Uh, <laughs> but he did start the Iraq war and he'll go into it. <laughs> Anyhow, and this black armband thing is bullshit because when you turn 50, there are people as young as that here, a few. <laughs> When you turn 50, you don't say, oh, congratulations, Merv. You're the bonzerest bloke that ever lived. All the Sheilas love you. You always behaved impeccably to everyone. You've spurned no one. You've insulted no one. You uh, are a totally, in fact, you're the model of humanity. Now, no one says that, only a madman. And only a pathological nation says that we have to talk only about the good bits. Mm. Mm. Uh, and uh, this is an argument uh, that's made in the book too. Very One of the old man's rants. Yeah. <laughs> Very convincingly. One of the other things I loved about what you're calling the old man's rants, if I can steal your language. And, and I, you know, I was very conscious of having this book in my head and then going into the book tent and perusing your novels. And it's, it offers really beautiful insight into your creative process. And you, you do write about the creative process, which you spoke about last night. But rather than ask you about that at this point, I'm really interested in, I can see how you seed ideas from history, from chance encounters, from life. But I'm really interested in what makes a difference in terms of deciding what to run with. So, for example, why, do you, why did Betsy Balcom grab your imagination? She's the one you wrote about in Napoleon's Last Island. And not Winifred Steger, who you mentioned in here. Where, where, when yeah. I read about her, my eyes just lit up, thinking this is a novel. This so how is do you a make novel. that call? How do you make that call? She's a South Australian woman who married uh, a cameleer, and they lived in Udnabatta. And as far as I know, she, native-born, you know, hardcore Oz, um, made the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca. In the 1920s. 20s. She and was married to... She was, she was a Darling Downs, you know, she had an unsuccessful marriage to a farmer. Then she married a Punjabi and after he died, she married an Afghan Kamali and went to the Hajj. Like, you couldn't make this up, could no. you? No, I mean, that's the trouble with our past. You can't make any of it up. The <laughs> fact that, that... One of the things I think of is that in my book about... You asked me about... Why write about Betsy Balkum? She was a teenager who encountered, who lived on St Helena. She was an English kid. Her father was the Providor, the West Indian Company supplier of goods on St Helena. Napoleon turns up, the day after he turns up on the island, he asks, can he use their summer house to live in? And she becomes his familiar. She rides with him. She starts to say things like she's both untutored and cheeky. So she says things like, I bet you're sad you invaded Russia now. <laughs> uh, and Napoleon, who didn't have a childhood, uh, played games with them. 
blind man's buff or bluff, whichever it is, uh, and hidings and so on. And the member of the family, they all ended up in Australia anyhow. And the reason they ended up in Australia is they got too close to Napoleon. And that with the, with the um, supplies went a lot of cooperation with Napoleon. So if Napoleon wanted to write to the, uh, a banker in France, he'd get the father, Balcom, to send the... Uh, uh, to, to, to go to a cargo ship captain and say what's it worth to you to deliver this when you're next in Paris. And so he was a collaborator with the um, uh, with the uh, 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 with the, the huge figure of Napoleon. The sympathy of progressive English folk for Napoleon was very high, and that's why he was there surrounded on an island mainly of cliffs, surrounded by fleet and a number of regiments and so on. But the, why I wrote that book, they ended in Australia. What do you do to Napoleon? You send him to St. Helena, an island of cliffs, and he turns up and says, can I use your granny flat? It's like having stuff. Stalin turning up at your place and saying, could I use your granny flat for a while? <laughs> Trotsky turning up on your dairy farm in the 30s saying, do you mind if I use that old woodshed? Anyhow, um, the, uh, uh, but they end up in Australia as unsatisfactory people. And I'm fascinated by all the unsatisfactory people who ended up in Australia. Plorn Dickens. Two sons, Dickens sent. The underachievers. It was normal <laughs> to send the underachievers. It's a wonder that with being convict, like Judy and I proudly are, and on the other hand, being free settlers, you can use a knife and fork. Any of us can use a knife. <laughs> uh, and uh, in, in any case, uh, writing a book is a bit different because the con men, like... DeVoe, uh, Flash Jim Vaux, who was sent to Australia, he wrote a book. All the clever convicts uh, wrote a book. Uh, and uh, nonetheless, uh, I was fascinated that a people for getting a family, for getting too close to Napoleon on an island run by the Tories, and these were high Tories, Mm. The people half our rivers are named after. Castle Ray, terrible bloke, terrible man, involved in Peterloo, Lord Sidmouth, a killer, crimes against humanity, and a group of convicts called the Cato Street Assassins, the Cato Street Conspirators, tried to kill the British cabinet in Berkeley Square in 1820. And two of those convicts ended up as constables in Bathurst. <laughs> and, uh, Makes you proud to be Australian. So I, I was fascinated that this unsatisfactory family, who were persecuted by Sidmouth and others, uh, would be then... And uh, uh, the aged Bathurst wanted to subject them to a treason trial, wanted to 
subject the father, who's in his 30s, he's got little kids, to a treason trial. Instead, they got a positive affidavit out of him contradicting Napoleon's French best-selling surgeon, O'Mara, who was which, very anti-government, very pro-Napoleon, and they gave an affidavit that everything was sweet on St Helena, and it wasn't. In return, he got a job in New South Wales. So they become, Australia is the jettisoning point for them yes. too. Yes. And I think it's wonderful that Europeans sent their sons and their unwanted here with the thought that they'd be Orpheus in the underworld <laughs> and they'd find their souls here. That's what, it's funny, um, Dickens had this, you may know, uh, Dickens had this um, charity uh, uh, called Urania Cottage in Shepherd's Bush and he ran it on the funds and under the, in, in cooperation with Baroness Coots, the inheritor of Coots Bank. E everyone tried to marry her and, uh, because, I mean, gee, I think I would have had a go. <laughs> give, give it a run, you know. <laughs> Never know your luck. And the, the colonial, the positive colonial spirit. But um, the, it, Dickens said to her, we must build a house to which we uh, welcome women who uh, have been thrown out of the workhouse, who have been, are unemployed seamstresses. Seamstresses were often sexually in other ways abused and if they dared to get pregnant, they were on the street. Mm. Uh, girls from the ragged schools. Mm. Uh, he brought them all, as well as prostitutes, he brought them into Urania Cottage. It was run by a warden. He never abused them. And he ran it in a way that made all the other houses for fallen women and, and unfortunate women and all the things engraved in stone about women. Uh, he, he ran it very well. And after a year, they came to Australia. So I know uh, some went to Canada a minority but the rest came to Australia, including um, South Australia. And uh, uh, his boys, when they arrived here, must have thought, are we the unfortunate boys, as these earlier women were the unfortunate mm. woman, women? It's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful book, The Dickens Boy. Um, and it's... It, it oh, is kind of, it's fascinating. it's fascinating, it's uh, fascinating. Held up by, they've got a great paper shortage in America, was held up by paper shortage. And, um, yeah, they lived up, they had a big connection with um, Adelaide because the people in Wilcannia, if they wanted to go to a city, uh, Adelaide was the nearest. So Dickens' wife... Connie, Plorn Dickens, that is. His wife, Connie, learnt her shorthand in Adelaide. Fantastic. And, uh, now, while we're on the topic of your novels, your latest novel, um, which is called Corporal Hitler's Pistol, there's a tongue twister, um, tell us about the inspiration for this one. Uh, well, for years my father has been telling me, and I met him when I was young, <clears throat> about an extraordinary pianist 
movie pianist, you know. Oh. And his name was Chicken Weeks, the real man. He was gay, but he was the sort of the town's protected and favoured uh, homosexual, you know. They, you, you know what Australia was like. Don't beat up our... And don't ask, don't tell. You beat up the thing. others, but don't you lay a hand. Because he's too good a piano player. So um, <clears throat> he w nonetheless lived on the margins of society in 1935. And I live a place near a place where young men were periodically sacrificed over a cliff. It's about 300 metres from where I live in Manly. Uh, by the way, the Manly Dam just broke and Manly, for the first time in recorded history, uh, uh, is subject to emergency flooding. They're moving 2,000 Manly people out. Um, and aren't you lucky to live in a desert? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, aren't you lucky to be in Adelaide? And, but, uh, but go back to, to go back to the piano player. The piano player, my mother, he he could hypnotise uh, chickens, and he uh, taught my father, who was the projectionist, my father and his lout lout brother, uh, Tardy. He's called after the Irish for Jimmy. Uh, he, uh, <clears throat> they came from the, the uh, Harp of Erin store in Kempsey, as my grandfather called it, and they were the projectionists in the Victoria Cinema. And uh, you wouldn't let them loose with any machinery. <laughs> However, <laughs> there they were, and uh, chicken taught my father how to hypnotise chickens because his father was a rail cutter and uh, it was a very skillful but very what, ill-paid... What, what's actually the purpose of hypnotising a chicken? So they end in the pot oh. before you never bring them round, you know. Oh. <laughs> my father used it to success in the Middle East during the war. But the chickens were pretty lean in the Middle East. <laughs> so, okay, so we've got a chicken, a chicken, <laughs> a chicken hypnotising gay pianist already. I, I don't know how you thought that would make a good story, Tom. <laughs> and then on top of that, then my mother and her store, the store she worked in, is on the front page, Barsby store. The Barsbys were First Fleet convicts, uh, and. She sold him makeup in about 1930, you know, about before I was born, before 1935. And he used to make the use the makeup. He used to make up Aboriginal women. She said, "If uh, he said the old man said that's right. If one of the Aboriginal women were going to Sydney, he'd make them up. So you had the marginalised making up the marginalised. I thought this is too bloody good to be true. So I even researched makeup in the 30s. Of course, now they have uh, makeup in America, especially for African American women. But there was no such no. thing then. And, uh, and you see Chicken adjusting his craft to deal with the darker complexion. And then uh, uh, on top of that, I've always wanted to write about the woman who sees infallibly the features of her husband 
on a half-caste kid because the town used the Aboriginal people, you know, the, this keeping them out of pubs and so on, which was supposed to be a good thing, gave the unscrupulous a means to penetrate Aboriginal society and, and to have sex with um, Aboriginal women. And uh, so that pieces... Now, there will be a time in the future when those families get together, coming from the la same lustful old goat, uh, and they will celebrate holidays and Christmas together. But it hasn't happened yet. Uh, and towns like Kempsey are in their accustomed denial about it. Uh, and uh, so I wanted to write about that, of course. I can't write, I can't write to read yeah. this one. I can't wait to read it. Um, I just want to put the audience on notice that we will have uh, question time in about five minutes. If you dare to ask Tom a question, um, it's not for the faint-hearted, can I tell you? Um, <laughs> um, no, but seriously, uh, we will invite you up to this microphone here. Just remind you all that a question does end in a question mark. And if you could keep your questions brief so that um, Tom gets to learn what brevity looks like. No, I'm saying that. <laughs> um, if you keep your questions brief. Well um, said, so yeah. that more people get time. No, I'm, having a, I'm having a lot of fun here. Um, I'm going to ask you one more question before we, uh, we go to the floor. And there's so many questions I could ask you, Tom, because Tom covers such vast terrain in this book. It's everything from there's, there's multiple chapters on Indigenous history. There's a, a beautiful chapter on um, the history of homosexual law reform in this country, on climate, on refugees, asylum seekers. Jesus. Jesus. George Pell, but it's International Women's Day and there's a chapter called Women of Australia which includes a beautiful story about Judy and I wondered if you might tell us that. Well, I've, I'm fascinated that the nurses in World War I in the clearing stations, working in a clearing station like Trois Arbor near Amiens, you had to process a lot of damaged young men in about two days. Uh, some sorted themselves out by tragically dying. Others had to be treated for shock before you could lay another medical finger on them, a surgical finger or whatever. Uh, others were, uh, had amputations. Uh, uh, others were mad. Others had been gassed and were mad. And altogether you went through the various, others had thoracic wounds, others had facial wounds. The, uh, I saw that in Eritrea. There's one night I went in the camp in Eritrea where uh, Fred Hollows used to operate, and outside the dentistry, which was the only maxilla facial uh, place they had, these three dozen young people <clears throat> lifted their cloak up over their face as I passed. I just saw three dozen young people mm. in beautiful, colourful cloth hiding their face from me. And uh, they're the worst. Tell us uh, about the leap, though, from the nurses... To Judy. To Judy. So why didn't the nurses get... It's a very small leap, young... Oh, I know. You know. <laughs> 
only about 80 years, but anyhow. <laughs> Judy, uh, I was with Judy in Eritrea. We, when Fred Hollows was there and so on, and I wrote a book about Eritrea, and I put a bit about Eritrea and depicted uh, Fred Hollows in a book called Two Old Men Dying, yes. And anyhow, um, one night we left a rotor where the, where the famous hospital where Fred and others operated. And we came across some nomad people who had in a sling on the side of camels a uh, beautiful 15-year-old girl whose life was already doomed who had trodden on a uh, landmine, a Russian landmine. Ethiopian landmine, and she was in a mess. Now, the sound man and I were immediately sick, and Judy, who can't stand her daughter's room being in a mess, and who really can become a fury over that, Judy just calmly treated her, and not terminally, but near term, and then we drove back to a rota where the, we sat with her in a corridor. She lay on, on stone on a thickness of a stretcher. The doctor said that's, the, that's their normal bed, so, you know, the hard desert. And she was going to be cleaned up in this operation and saved from septicemia but she was not going to have proper legs. And for a nomad, by mm. definition, you need a camel and your legs. And Judy at no stage worried about this. Now, the man, the sound man was knocked out, but Judy did the work of scout nurse and sound during that surgery. And there's footage of it in a documentary we made in 1989, 1990. And uh, I think so Judy deserves, I just, a, deserves a round of applause, actually. And yeah, I can't work out why, why I vomited. And I mean, obviously, the idea of male toughness, we're over that. But why, you know, I'm the post traumatic stress man vomiting my heart out. And Judy is the girl who processes everything. And I think it's uh, there, it, it's a characteristic of, of, of women. When I, I've seen it happen a number of times when something extreme happened in Eritrea or even now, th th they can frequently be very calm you've got and this, address it. You've got this beautiful line, and I'm going to say this line and then go to questioning. In the book, in that chapter called Women of Australia, where you say womanly competence is its own protection against shock. And I kind of love that. I yeah, love that that's, a, that's a nice line. <laughs> <laughs> I would have thought it was written by a better writer. <laughs> and on that note, we're going to throw to questions. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I've been curious for a number of years uh, why when you uh, gave the Australian TV uh, of the 
American TV series on uh, the uh, American Civil War, when you gave your Australian introductions to them, why for the ninth, one round about uh, 1865 that you didn't mention the Shenandoah incident, I would have thought that uh, 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 with your Irish background and uh, New South Welsh background that you might have uh, uh, made some comments with a, a wry smile. Yes, indeed. It's a great story, isn't it? It's a a uh, Confederate raider that remained out in the oceans of the earth and uh, came to Melbourne. I'm sure it came to Adelaide, didn't it? Uh, and uh, the, the, uh, it was the last ship to surrender. It stayed out some months before surrendering. I became very interested and covered a lot of the battles of the Civil War because they didn't tell us in high school that an Australian escaped convict, Thomas Francis Marr, who became a rock star in New York, 1850 style, raised a brigade of New Yorkers called the Irish Brigade, and he fought in a string of battles, and he even had a fist fight with Sherman. And so uh, he was in, Napole he was not Napoleon's, Lincoln's, uh, grave party for the, not sorry, not the grave party, the standing in state party in the Capitol. And he became governor of Montana. He went to Montana and the Republican vigilantes killed him. That's what I reckon, and I've got evidence for it, but they ran a story that he fell drunken over the side of the ship. Now, he was a, a drinker, but we have evidence he hadn't drunk uh, on this particular ride because he had what many a horseman in Montana had, uh, a severe gastric fever. And uh, the, the man who, the ferry captain to whom he's, he was speaking five minutes before says he was totally sober. So the Republicans hated him because he was going to bring in a lot of Irish from the South. And he, he, not out of sentimentality for the old sod, for the land of the shamrock, tra-la, tra-la, but they were Democrat voters. <laughs> and he knew, he was appointed by Lincoln, but he wanted to be the next, the elected governor. And uh, if he brought in Democrats, they'd vote for him. Uh, he that was, was no killed no. for that uh, <laughs> enterprise. Uh, and he, but his career in the Civil War is fascinating. Uh, and then he had a mate called Sickles, General Sickles, who had his leg blown off and made a thing of that. Uh, Mark Twain said, of General Sickles' two legs, I think he prefers the one that was blown off than the one he retains. <laughs> and on that note... <laughs> yeah, so I... that's how I got onto the... Yeah. <laughs> Wait, next question. All right. Thank you, Tom. Um, when we look around us and we think about Writers Week in general, we're really immersed in storytelling. 
You mentioned that there hasn't been so much recently on Australian identity. There have actually been sessions about Australian identity nationally and internationally. I wondered how you would locate the idea of storytelling and a good old yarn uh, as part of Australian identity in all of that. Mm, great question. Yes, uh, there is definitely uh, the question of Australian identity is actually very heavy in the book because part of it is knowing how ancient Australia is. Part of it is who first landed here on a tropic beach. Was it a family party? Was it a couple of males? And then... How, who was the first footer 80,000 or 90,000 years ago? Even before, so that, so that um, Mungo Man had a sense of antiquity and a sense of the cataclysm coming that we all have. It's funny that, that humans from pole to pole are always... Uh, always feel that they're in the last of times. Mm. And, I mean, we've got a lot of reasons to believe that, but it, it is true that they've always believed in it and we say the, you know, the young today, <laughs> uh, that sort of syndrome, it seems to be, seem to have a pattern for that in our unconscious and... Uh, it do, you is think that, do you think that fuels the storytelling? Do you think that feeling that we're at the end of days is what fuels our story. Yes, indeed. But the, I feel that that antiquity, we're beginning to think of Australia as antiquity. Now, the last time I saw the great and wonderful A.D. Hope was in a motel here at the, where they put us all during a festival in the 80s. I believe it was 1984. And he'd had a good night, God bless him, and he was drunk, he was, well, he, no, he, he had, the Irish have a good phrase for it, he had drink taken <laughs> uh, and uh, was in a jolly condition. And uh, he had written that famous poem in 1939, which we identified with, they call her a young nation, but they lie. Now, they don't lie anymore because if you say to a 20-year-old who has any education, they, they'll say, no, we're an old, old, old human country. And so that tension between the young society and, uh, uh, and the uh, antiquity of Australia is fascinating to me and I think becomes part of the equation when I was a little kid in school, they told us our country had a dead heart. That, that really encourages national consciousness. Um, sorry, kid, you got a dead heart at the centre. And, uh, you know, the centre will kill you. Europeans go to the centre to be killed by something alien. Just look at Burke and Wills. And that is no longer... We go to the centre to celebrate now. We no longer use, say, the dead heart. I remember being out with one old Yankatajara man uh, in the 80s near Ayers Rock, one of the 
people that have a traditional claim on a part of the rock. And he, there was a camera uh, being set up by Mark, Mark, I've just figured his name. He's a great photographer. And this bloke started showing off in the landscape. Uh, and he started giving me bits of insect gall, dug up roots, uh, got honey out of banksias. It was, it was great. I was fascinated. And I thought, Australia doesn't have a dead heart. Australia has a smorgasbord at the bloody heart. That's <laughs> a <t> <laughs> and, so true. Uh, so true. And so that changing perception is all part of a growing uh, awareness that we we all have. Uh, and uh, uh, long may it uh, continue to grow, but if you put a shrine, an interpretive centre, place of both reverence and scholarship, where Mungo and Mungo Lady, um, she's a younger woman, she's about for uh, about removed from him by about 1,500 years, they think, uh, about 40,500 years old. Um, if you go to something like that, the question of Aboriginal legitimacy is answered mm. in one bite and in one BYTE as well. This is, and this is, uh, this is a very strong... This is a very strong message in your book. You, you really champion that message. And look, I, I, you know, as you can all see, we could sit up here and talk forever and I'm sorry that we've run out of time for questions, but please blame Tom. No, please come to the t signing table afterwards. Tom, you'd be very happy to take questions there, I imagine. But I want to finish on a note. Um, it's a little bit indulgent, but I read Tom's... Tom has a chapter... He has these chapters called enigmas that are interspersed with, um, with the essays and that they're a little bit more personal. And this one's called uh, Death, the Comic Cosmic Ouch. And I read this on the, um, the morning of my late mother's birthday in February. And it just... Uh, he write, Tom writes, life is strong in people. Life doesn't drop them easily. Uh, many of us take a fair amount of killing and the process isn't designed to be easefully achieved. And this was a bit of a, a, bit of a comeback to Keats. And it, I, I took enormous comfort out of that because it was exactly the way my mother went. And, you know, I had these, I'd had romantic notions of the easeful death and the holding of the hand while she slipped away. And to read this, having lived through her fighting for every moment of life was deeply comforting and I had a good cry. Um, but equally beautifully in this, uh, in this chapter, Tom quotes uh, a poem that his then 17-year-old granddaughter wrote and there's also a beautiful chapter on grandparency and how much he loves being a grandfather. So I thought it would be a really lovely way to finish the session to get you to read your unnamed granddaughter's poem. Yes. Uh, well... She's an ordinary girl, but she devours books of verse. You know, she reads Octavio Paz and, uh, and Robert Frost cover to cover. And uh, she has uh, a great number. She's very emotionally literate in a way I wasn't when I was her age. And she had a very demanding boyfriend 
who was, um, you know, the old thing, I'm as, as mad as a rattlesnake to you and I'm giving you a lot of trouble, but don't leave me because I'll kill myself, you know. Uh, and she wrote to him, uh, all of my writing given to you in hopes to give you comfort. For me, it did that too. And then, uh, and then she goes to it, we're all in the same boat line, uh, that I'm gonna die, don't dramatize your supposed death, I'm gonna die too. And when I leave shards of me in every one I know, I wonder will they remember me with the candle they blow? So the flag has been hung, the gates are open wide. The blinding light is not the same color from inside. It is warmer now, that cold, sterile blue that would radiate onto you with judgment like the school kids used to do. If you wonder why I slipped away, just know an angel took my hand and quietly did say, you have given the world your love. And this is 17 year old talking about the contract between her and death. Um, we, we made sure she was psychiatrically okay. <laughs> you have given the world your love, a spine to its once lifeless back. And now you must do what all humans do, say your goodbyes, close your eyes, and let it give your love back. Isn't that exquisite? To a man who has given us so much to love, um, thank you, Tom. Thank you. <laughs> oh, please don't forget to come and join Tom at the signing table. All his novels, the new book and the histories are all on sale uh, in the tent. <laughs>